Hello, everyone. This is Francis York Morgan. You're listening to Goddamn GameCube. But please, call me York. All my friends do. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Goddamn GameCube. Greg and Beppy are your hosts today. And uh, wow, uh, we have an incredible guest in the virtual house today. This is really a dream come true for Beppy and I. Uh, Jeff Kramer is here with us today. He is the founder and president of Comedy Sports San Jose. He is a theater professor at Ohlone College, and our fans know him as the voice of Francis York Morgan from Deadly Premonition. Jeff, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Greg. Okay, let's um, let's start right at the beginning, if you don't mind. Were you always interested in being an actor and a performer? Like, where did that drive come from for you? Probably started in grade school, junior high. You know, my my friends and I used to write sketches and we'd actually record them, you know, on cassette tape players. Sure. And and, uh, one of my friends had a really expensive cassette recorder that had two microphone inputs. So, you know, we were it was super high tech back then. Moving uh, moving ahead with that. um, Did you did you study acting and performing arts at Penn State in Madison, Wisconsin? I looked into your history a little bit. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was uh, I got my BFA at Penn State uh, in acting, uh, and then went to Wisconsin, got an MFA as well in performance. So yeah, all of my training was as an actor and did a little bit of improv in college, but Mm -hmm. mostly it was acting, you know, with scripts. Let's let's talk about improv. Um, Let's talk about comedy sports. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about competitive improv and what led you to joining the team in Madison in the 80s, just for maybe our audience who isn't familiar with what it is? Sure. Well, it's the competitive part means there are two teams of performers. So if you've ever seen Whose Line Is It Anyway, Wild and Out, shows like that, there's usually, you know, one team of performers. And so in this case, it's a competition. The performers are on two different teams. It's set up like a sporting event. That's what drew me to it in the first place was I was always a huge sports fan growing up and played a lot of sports. And so this combined two of my loves, which was performing, acting, comedy, and also sports. (laughs) So it's not comedy about sports. It's just done as if it were a sport. Unlike whose line, it's the points do matter in this case. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And comedy sports actually took it a step further as far as the sports metaphor goes. So we have a stage, but there's literally artificial turf on the stage we're in uniforms there's a referee that can call fouls on the players and has a stopwatch (laughs) and a whistle that's another thing that drew me to it because comedy sports format the improv has to be suitable for everybody so there's a brown bag foul if you say something that crosses the line of good taste you get a bag (laughs) put over your head we need that a lot on this show oh Oh, my goodness And so that just makes it harder because the challenge is, can you be funny without venturing into getting a laugh by saying something that crosses that line? Sure. Sure. Um, Now, when did you start the San Jose show and team? Was it soon after Madison or was it later in your career? I left Madison. I've got my degree in 86, moved out here to San Jose to take a job with a children's theater. Okay. And the founder of Comedy Sports, whose name is Dick Chudnow, He asked me if I wanted to set something up when I got out here. He had this vision of this being like the NFL or or the major leagues of comedy. We had there was a team in Milwaukee where it all started. 
he started the second team in Madison where I got onto it. And then he had this vision of it being in lots of cities and we play home and away matches just like any other sporting team. And so it's become that reality now today. When when I started in San Jose, I think we were the fourth or fifth team. Mm -hmm. And now there are close to 30 teams in the US and we even have one in the UK. That's really neat. I was, um, cause I was looking on the website and before this interview, like I wanted to check out a, a virtual show with you in it cause we're in Massachusetts. So oh, okay. I think I think there's one coming up. So we're definitely gonna attend. Oh, great. I wanted to ask you next. So I'm a musician for a living, unfortunately. And I was going to ask you, like, <laughs> so uh, can you talk about the life of a working actor? Like being in the performing arts is hard, like, as you know, like, can you speak about like how you made your living in like the early days, like the 80s through the 90s? I saw like you were in some Shakespeare festivals or can you right. expand on that for me? I was really, really lucky that really ever since I got my master's and got out of college, I've pretty much been working as a performer ever since. And I just find that lucky based on all of the other friends I had who were way more talented than me, who either, either got smart and stopped performing and got jobs that paid real money. Or there are some of my friends that are still working as actors today. And they've told me, you know, my my best year ever as an actor, I was still on unemployment for half the year. Oh, my God. That's how it works as an actor. You You can't work 52 weeks a year as a professional actor because you go into a show and while you're in that show you're committed to performing there even if you got a job right away in another show it doesn't start the day after the first show closes so if you're lucky as an actor and you have a great year you might be in four shows but they're not back to back to back and there's always downtime in between so you're basically filing for unemployment four times during the year <laughs> wow, and yeah. it's a really really hard life and it is not for the faint of heart right i so moving on to uh, voice acting uh, voiceover work um how did you get involved in that aspect of performing and what were some of your early roles and if you don't mind me asking did you play video games before that were you a fan a little bit i i played a lot of the classic video games where there really were no voice artists in the games. Mm -hmm. Everything were the, you know, the arcade games. So, you know, I, I remember when Pong first came out sure. and that was amazing. State of the art. We were, we'd play that for hours. Just, mm -hmm. wow, how do they do that? And then, you know, even the early games like Pac-Man and Space Invaders and Asteroids, there's no voices in those mm -hmm. every once right. in a while you might hear one voice <laughs> right sure and i still remember one game that was in, only in the arcade which was basically a dungeons and dragons type game where you were a wizard or a warrior sure. and as you were playing it every once in a while you'd hear this one voice that would say warrior needs food badly <laughs> right or wizard is about to die and but that was about it yeah, so it yeah. didn't even occur to me anything like that. When I got to uh, Ashland, when I was performing at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, they asked some of the actors to do some books on tape where you were just doing voiceover for that. So I think that was really my first kind of foray into just doing any type of recording like that. I really enjoyed it because it, just the challenge of being able to read and record you know, it takes some skill and the more mistakes you make, the harder it is for the engineers. So, you know, I just sure. got good at cold reading and that's where the acting experience came in. 
And it really wasn't until after I got out here in San Jose, I had someone contact me who had actually seen the comedy sports show. Sure. And he worked for a company called The Learning Company, which made children's educational software. If you ever heard of things like Reader Rabbit, uh, those were the early yep. kind of the Oregon Trail kind of things. They, they made all of those things. So it was a new thing for kids, right? Where you were literally playing a game, but learning at the same time. And so they, he said, you know, I'm working on this game and would you come in and just read for this one role? And I did and I got cast in it and I had a blast because I I really enjoyed going in and saying him saying, try a different voice, try and modulate your voice differently. All the improv training, of course, made it easy for me to try that and also fun. I would try something and he'd say, can you tweak it a little more? And I'd do that and he'd say, perfect, that's the voice. Got it. <laughs> and then it just, I got cast in more and more things. And that tends to happen sometimes in the voiceover world when they get used to working with someone that they like, yeah. you get called in more often. And sometimes you're auditioning, but other times they just say, I've got a role for you. Sure. And that's the best when you don't even have to audition. They just know you <laughs> sure. and know what you can do. It's, it's funny you brought that up because I was actually just going to ask when I was, I was just double checking all, all the voice roles that you had. And if I'm correct here, you uh, actually voiced uh, in a game that I played growing up uh, called Clue Finders. And I was wondering if you yep. remember anything about that. I think you were the villain in uh, in one of those games. That was that was the learning company. So that was an, right. an earlier role for me in the in the learning company. And I let that led to probably 10, 15 other games. And then this is how the networking happens one of the other voice actors was also an audio engineer and had a studio. And for the most part, you don't meet the other actors when you're recording. You, you just go in, you do your part, they come in and do their part. And even if you're in scenes together, you've still never met. Right. But for some reason on, I think it was on the clue, uh, well, maybe it wasn't the clue, there was, there was a math game I think I was doing. And there were a bunch of characters and in the last scene of the math game they had a party and the audio engineer thought i think it would be a great idea to bring all the actors in and have them all in the studio for this last section of the game all right on you know we had this chemistry between the five of us in the studio and so one of those five actors said hey i've been hearing your voice because you've been cueing me in my <laughs> and so it's great to finally put a face to a name Right. And, you know, he said, I'm an audio engineer, too. Uh, I'd love to have you come in and read for some stuff in my studio. So I did. And then that led to a bunch of other things, too. So a lot of that was just networking. And again, luck, just being in the right place at the right time, uh, being able to be flexible. So for me, I, that's one of my favorite things to do, actually, is to go into the studio not knowing what they want yet. And they have an idea and you just try it a bunch of different ways. Raise your pitch, lower your pitch, faster, slower. Can you add an affect to the voice until it's exactly what they want? Yeah, no, I was just going to say it's I, I feel kind of the same way where I'm finally seeing your face over Zoom. <laughs> and, and, you know, after I've heard so many different voices that you've done. Um, I was actually, I think the next memory I had of, of, uh, your work was, uh, that game Seaman. Oh Do you yeah. Much about Seaman. It's <laughs> another, it's like, cause you, you spoke, I believe in the Dreamcast into a little microphone mm -hmm. and talked yep. with the little creature that you voiced. And it's such a fascinating game because I think it's like. It's. I think it's really innovative, but it's also kind of disturbing. And I was just, <laughs> I was just curious if you had any like memories of like the direction you were given for that character or anything like that. Yeah, that that was a blast. That was the uh, I would say the second longest voiceover I've ever had to do because wow. they told me uh, it was approximately ten thousand lines. 
that wow. I had to record. Deadly yeah. Premonition was actually longer, but Seaman uh, at first was 10,000 lines, and that was actually harder because there wasn't really a backstory to it. Right. It was just, you just go in and just say all these lines, and now <laughs> this next day, you're going to be doing horoscopes, and you're just reading horoscopes, <laughs> right? For two hours. This is unbelievable. Uh, but I was in the studio, I was in the studio, uh, I want to say three to four days a week for a month doing Seaman. Wow. And it wow. was... 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. I think just all that time and it was just very <laughs> it was very dense <laughs> yeah uh, did you know the, what he was gonna look like or, or did they, they give they you showed any... me some yeah they showed me some pictures and it was bizarre <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible I mean when we when we were organizing this and you know I was reading and you know into your history and I said see man that game like that yeah. that's that's incredible man that's wow it was a really, really odd and unusual game, and I had to be sworn to secrecy. They did not want the word to get out that there was an actor voicing Seaman. Okay. This whole thing of oh, no Seaman. Seaman wow. is a creature, and you know how sometimes you'll see a movie where we'll say the voice is played by itself or something like that. The whole time I was <laughs> doing it, I had to sign a contract saying I would not reveal that I was the voice of Seaman. Wow! And I don't even know that it was in the credits of the original game. It might have been if you got all the way to the end, but I, I can't remember. But I remember it was this whole shroud of secrecy that they people could not know who it was, even though it's not like I was a celebrity or anything, but they just, they wanted the voice to just be a voice. And That's fascinating. not associated with anything. Yeah, it was, it was pretty intense just doing, I have a picture somewhere of me sitting with four loose leaf notebooks that each have 300 pages in them on my, oh my lap and that <laughs> I had to go through all four notebooks to record that whole thing. That's great. And I've heard, I haven't seen it yet, but I've yeah. heard that there's some YouTube videos of some folks that have done some montages of them doing just really weird questions asking to see man and really the response and they have it on YouTube. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but that oh, man. Uh, uh, several years ago, it, it became a another bump in popularity for the game just because sure. these guys had uploaded these videos. <laughs> and that that part was really cool because Seaman led to a bunch of other things. Right. I they said we're gonna do uh Sega wants to do a national spot for Seaman. Yeah. And so I you know had to go up to a studio in San Francisco and record the voiceover for that. I remember watching it because they played it for the first time during the MTV musical or video awards wow which was a big deal in 2000 2001 oh yeah, huge. Oh, yeah. Huge. and so that was really cool to know i'm i'm gonna have this spot and everybody is going to be seeing this because that was such a huge thing and then sega decided to make another commercial just for sega and all their games and so seaman was a part of that commercial too did you by chance um did you did you uh get a chance to meet leonard nimoy he famously also no. narrates it. <laughs> that's that's the other thing is that Traditionally, with these games, you don't share a studio with anybody mm -hmm. else. Yeah. You're just in there I alone. I figured. I, I just thought it was worth yeah, asking. I, I was hoping I would. They told me. They told me they got him to do the narration while I was recording it, and I thought I'd get a chance to meet him. And they said no. They're recording his lines down in L.A. Uh, uh, I did a. I did a voiceover for a game called Space Channel Five, which was this bizarro kind of dance game <laughs> uh and but one of the characters was voiced by michael jackson wow oh my did, god his stuff was recorded in la too though so you know, i never <laughs> wow. got i never got within 400 miles of either of them. 
I wasn't I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's um move right ahead to uh Deadly Premonition, uh specifically the first game. So we're massive fans of the game on the show. How did you get involved in that project? Like was there an audition process? Like there's so much I want to ask about yeah. this. There was an audition. I got called in for I, I guess they they it was a callback because it was the same studio where I had recorded Seaman and a bunch of other things. So again, they said, we want you in just for the callbacks. You know, it was me and maybe two or three other people right from the beginning. So I didn't have to go through the big round of auditions because they knew me and had worked with me. Sure. And so the, uh, you know, Swery had created this game and the audio engineers said to him, you know, we think we've got someone that would be good for this. So I, I went in and read, you know, he was there. Well, actually, no, he wasn't there at, during the audition. They were in Japan. So they would just send the voiceover audition to him in Japan. And that, so that's how I got cast originally in, in Deadly Premonition, the first one. And I'm so curious, because Deadly Premonition is a sizable game, like with a lot of dialogue and an involved story. And uh, obviously it's a Japanese game. Fill me in here. Did you work with like a line director and a localization team when recording the lines? Like, how did that work? No, this one was done. Now, I had done some other games where I was replacing or overdubbing from Japan. You sure. Know, it was a popular game in Japan. And like Seaman, for instance, had actually been released in Japan. It was one of the biggest games of all time in Japan. Mm. And they decided to release it in the U.S. And so I was brought in to be the, the U.S. you know version of Seaman. I've done other games where it was recorded and then I just had to come in and just overdub it in English because they wanted to keep everything exactly the same, just switch out the actors. Okay. Interesting. But this one, if I remember correctly, no, was was written to be released both in the US and Japan. So it would either have subtitles or if you were playing it and you were, you know, spoke English, you would hear it in, in English. So Swery was there in the studio with the producer and one or two other people. None of them spoke English at the time, okay. but Swery knew how he wanted it to sound. So this is what was really interesting. He had a translator with him. They okay. were on the other side of the glass, right? And they could see me. I could see them. You would see him talk to the translator. The translator would tell me what he was thinking and what he wanted. And then I would give him an approximation of the voice or the recording. He liked the voice originally, but they just, as far as the inflections on certain lines. And I would do it and then swear he, he would either like it and just nod his head. And I knew okay. he would be, be pleased. Or he would give some notes to the interpreter. The interpreter would give the notes to me and then I would try it again and that's how it worked. So it was a much slower process at the time because, you know, I, I didn't speak any Japanese. He didn't speak any English. Yeah. Now, Agent York is a very fascinating character. Like, I, I love the story of this game. And I mean that, like, seriously, like, wholeheartedly. It was so surprising and just, God, I could talk about it forever. <laughs> but were you, I, I, you were just um, speaking on sort of how uh, Swery would sort of give you direction right. in the studio. Before you were face-to-face, -face, like, what went into maybe the decision-making or the shaping of York's personality and, like, motivation? Was that really, like, Swery giving you direction, like, in the present? Or, like, what went into preparation, if there was any? Well, the first preparation, now, I'll tell you this, we had to record it twice. Okay. Uh, the first one, because uh, his view of this game was he was a huge fan of Twin Peaks. Yes, yep. yeah. And I had seen, I was a fan of Twin Peaks. You know, I okay. saw the whole series in the 90s. 
And when they told me this is what we're looking for, you know, he said, you know, York uh, is Agent Cooper. That's how I see this. Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty much how I base the voice. You know, uh, Cooper had a, a somewhat monotone voice, you know, it was very even keeled. And so that's what my first instinct was. And that's the direction he wanted it to go. And then there were a few modulations on that. But that's really the voice I was hearing in my head was Kyle McLaughlin's interpretation of Agent Cooper. I mean, that's literally what I was going on, what I was trying to recreate. So that's that was the baseline for the voice. Now, I, I'm sure I changed it a little bit, but that was literally what I was hearing in my head was him doing Agent Cooper and me trying to recreate <laughs> it as best I could. And so we, we recorded the whole thing. And then about six months later, they called and said, we need to redo this because they've gotten into some copyright things from ah, David Lynch and Lynch. <laughs> and it's a little too close. And so he actually had to change the name of the character and the name of the game. So the original title, if I remember, and I don't think I'm violating any non-disclosures here, but the original title of the game was Rainy Woods. Yep, yep. And so it was too close, right? Sure, and sure, sure. I'm trying to remember the first uh, name of the character. It wasn't York, but it was something else. It was just too close to the show. Yeah, too close okay. to the show. So we had to go in and just re-record every line where York's name was mentioned. <laughs> sure. And you know how many times he says, you know, yeah, yeah, over, and and know over and over and over. My name is Francis York Morgan. Call me York, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, it was something else. Sure. And so we had to change all of those lines. So that took a while to re-record that, which is why the first game didn't come out until I would say two years, if I remember correctly, after I recorded it. Got it. Wow. I'd forgotten about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And suddenly oh, that's the, coming out. And, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then you know I find out the game is the game is coming out. But that was my baseline for the voice was that. And so it was basically just modulations and then sweary just telling me you know here's the emotion that i think we're going for here yeah i, I actually very much in that vein uh, my next couple questions were about i mean the, the twin peaks comparisons are pretty obvious but it's it's so fascinating to me because it's sort of someone who has lived in the japan their whole lives uh interpretation of twin peaks right and how that maybe like colors their perception of america as a whole and then sort of being translated back into english so it's such like a, exactly. a strange cultural like um, uh, reverb loop, I guess, or something yeah. like a feedback loop, I guess. Yeah. Um, I was just curious if you if because I mean, evidently you had to change it up a little bit if that if that played into the way you performed it all, if it was any kind of like, I don't know, because I feel like anime and, and manga is like very kind of heightened and, and over over mm -hmm. the top. And, you know, the Agent Cooper is, is, as you said, very kind of on an even keel. So I felt like there was some I don't know if you, you added any any particular color of that nature into the character at all well that's what's interesting to me about voiceover work you know as an actor the director will kind of prod you in a different direction and you'll interpret it different ways but a, a voiceover director will give you much more precise things specifically about your voice too mm -hmm. you know an acting director won't say i want you to make your voice higher or lower or different qualities to it they'll just say mm -hmm. here's the emotion i'm going for and sure. with a voiceover director they're basically saying you need to back off the mic a little bit give me a little bit a little bit more here vocally think about the emotional state but it's really all channeled into your voice you know there's no movement involved like you are when you're on stage there's no right. blocking there's no anything it's just all channeled into the voice and the emotion and so it took a little while. It was it was different because of the translation and, and the different cultures. 
But we got into a groove after a while. You know, I figured out what they needed and they adapted to me as well. They knew how to talk to me after a while to get what they wanted. That's cool. Uh, that's really it was not cool. the weirdest thing I ever did. <laughs> yeah, no, I did a voice. I had to do a voiceover once where uh, the director was in a studio in Japan and I we couldn't see each other. You know, it was oh, just, wow. uh, you know, it was long before broadband where you could do a video thing. It was just, sure. you know, and I they had an IS, uh, you know, uh, DN hookup in their studio, I guess. <laughs> So, you know, they were they were at, you know, maybe five megs. That was state of the art back then. Right. I don't even yeah, know if it sure. was that fast. I don't even know if it was that fast. <laughs> yeah. I would they would say something in Japanese. I would hear the interpreter in my headphones. Right. <laughs> yeah. But there, we're not there. We're, we're 10,000 miles apart. Yeah. And I would I would do the voice and I could hear the director in the background either saying something in Japanese. And I knew I nailed it when I would just hear, hey. <laughs> I, I would just hear that and, I, and then he would go he said good right and i would yeah, go I, I, I got used to hearing that you know that sound but that was that, that was weird this was different because they were actually there um and if you want to hear a, a fun story the first time we recorded this which was i think it was in palo alto when we did the original uh deadly premonition they came out from japan they were there for you know three weeks while we were recording but we went out for lunch and they wanted to drive even though we had another car. They said, no, we want to drive ourselves to lunch. And they had rented this muscle car. <laughs> uh, you know, I can't remember what it was, but it was, you know, a big American muscle car. And they just said, we don't have these in Japan. And whenever we get the opportunity, you know, they want the experience. <laughs> this is what That's they wanted awesome. to drive. So I think they had like a Mustang with a V8, you know, and it's yeah. just, you know, this big, huge muscle car. And it, so it was fun just watching, you know, these guys were like, this is what we want to do while we're here. And That's uh, amazing. let me let me ask you this uh, before we move on. Were any lines in the game improvised by you or was this very strict and scripted? No, all all scripted. The only thing that I would do is if they needed sounds, you know, if there was an exclamation of a of a sound of a punch or, sure. or something like that, then I was just I was making sounds which weren't in the script. And I would just try a bunch of different sounds. You know, they would say, give me 10 different oofs or something like that. Or, <laughs> sure, sure, or sure. Or 10 different, Ugh, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> did, did you like sort of um, the way I guess you did you read the script sort of? I mean, I'm sure it was changing uh, over the course of you said you recorded it twice. Um, did the story change significantly or were you kind of sucked into the? Because I was like, when it comes to um, the the script of, of this game, I found it made more sense than I was expecting because <laughs> when you think about Twin Peaks, it's very like, I feel like David Lynch is very much like a feel artist. Like this is yeah. like, this is a small town and this is just the way people are. But in this game, right. it's, it's like, there's actually something in the water essentially. So I right. was really taken aback by Were you like kind of as surprised by the story, like the directions it took? Yeah. Now here's another interesting thing. That's the difference between acting you know, in a play and acting in a voiceover role. I never saw the whole script before I right. started recording. You just came in and you were given the 20, 30, 40, 50 pages you were going to read that day and you didn't see ahead. When I'm acting in a play, I get the whole script. I, I know the whole story before I even start. Right. And in this one, it just came in pieces and they didn't want me to know the ending. Wow. Or even that's, what was going to happen next. That's cool. Until we got to... <laughs> I found it as I read it. And in some parts, I really didn't even know what was going on there because again, it's just my line. Right. Sometimes I'm in a scene with other people 
but that's all I'm seeing is that section of the script. And so there were times where I'd say, well, what happens after this? <laughs> where, what's happening to these other people? Because I, I didn't know. I'm only seeing my little world. I guess it puts you uh, in his shoes a little bit as a detective. You know, he's he's figuring it out piece by it piece. It was so. kind of like that, too. Yeah, it's yeah. just a different challenge as an actor to not know what the arc of your character is at all. Sure, right. Experiencing it as you go. What um? What's your reaction to the, I want to call it maybe the cult following or dedicated fan base of Deadly Premonition? Did you expect that at all? Or <laughs> you're no. shaking your head for no. everyone? No idea listening. what was going to happen. <laughs> and that was what they, it, I think it's in the Guinness Book of World, World Records as the, uh, as far as a video game coming out and the point difference between the highest reviews and the lowest reviews yeah of the game. I, I remember when because now i am i can show you the box i bought this game on release man like uh <laughs> in, back in 2010 and i remember reading reviews and i said some websites give it a hundred and some are giving it a, a zero or yes. a 20 and yes. i said i need to i need to play it like i need <laughs> to know what this is that's crazy and and it leads into my next question like were you surprised several years later when a sequel was a, a sequel was announced and like how did it come together for you to get involved sure it it surprised me with the reviews you know the the dichotomy between those reviews is probably what drove the game sales so high because that's why i like, bought it right and i'm sure that's why a lot of people bought it because they hadn't heard much about it but they said well if one review site absolutely said it was one of the worst games of all time and the other one said it's one of the best games of all time I have to find out where that came from right and talk yeah. about it and for some people the gameplay you know they would say oh it's so clunky and it's old why isn't it up to the standards that we have today and other people would look at it and go no it's a throwback it's supposed to look like that and <laughs> you had all of those different viewpoints and so the interesting thing for me is they wrote to me and said you have to see these reviews Right? Because remember, I didn't even know it had come out. It had been right. two years. Right? <laughs> and th by that time, there was not a big fanfare for the release of it because it had just been so long. They kept saying, oh, it's going to be out in six months. No, it's going to be out in nine months. No, a year. And so even the people that were getting excited about this game had lost track of when it was coming out. And then suddenly <laughs> it was just, it's out. <laughs> right? Right. right? And then these reviews. So it was interesting because they said, you, you need to read these reviews and you know, don't feel bad about one of them. And, <laughs> you know, but for me, interestingly, I could really, you know, divest myself from getting affected personally by any of the reviews. You sure. know, as as an actor, when you're in a play, if if you get a bad review, that can feel really bad and personal and attacking because there's so much more of you invested in this and you have much more control as an actor in your performance. But as a voiceover actor, for me, I just feel like you're literally just trying to give them exactly what they want, what the director mm -hmm. wants. And so it's not necessarily the way I would have looked at it as an actor if I had been given free reign over this character. You know, sure. the director had a, a clear idea of what they wanted, what they wanted it to sound like. And so I just gave them what they wanted. They directed me. They said, go like this, go like this. They narrowed it down to this fine point. And so if somebody didn't like it, I didn't take it personally because I said, I just did what they told me to do. Right. And if you didn't like it, eh, I'm not offended personally. <laughs> yeah, not, take it up with them. Yeah, exactly. It's not me out there that you're critiquing. When it comes to the sequel, like how did you get involved? Because like, it was 10 years later. 
right or almost how did that shake how did that shake out well uh i had lost touch with most of the people from the game they at one point they a couple of years after it came out they said they actually called me back into the studio because they were making a director's cut yep yep Mm -hmm. so i hadn't seen them in a in a few years went back into the studio and recorded this thing for the director's cut swery and his team were actually in japan when we did the director's cut and that was really funny because they uh audio engineer and the director were talking to them and at that point they were they had broadband and they had this video hookup in japan and so they just put they would play a little bit for them as we went along but they said yeah that's good that's fine because we had we knew what the character was all about at that point sure and it was just re-recording but what was funny was the we finished the last part and they were showing them what we had recorded and i was going to leave and the audio engineer and the director waved me over and said hey say uh say hi to sweary and the team you know they're in japan right now (laughs) and so they're they're talking in japanese and i just kind of leaned my head around the corner so they could see me in the camera and all of a sudden all of them just go Kramer! <laughs> that's awesome. It was like being Norm on Cheers, you know? Oh my just, God. That's, that's good to was, know that they're fans. Well, we hadn't yeah. seen, you know, we hadn't seen each other in two or three years, right? So yeah. it was just yeah. like a little, a little reunion like that's that. so fun. And so, you know, I saw them a couple of years later and then I got a Facebook message from Swery and it's, it was about a paragraph long and it said, you know, uh, hey York, it's me, Swery. My English is getting a lot better. What do you think? Uh, wow! And you know, I wrote back to him and said, "Oh, that's great," because he didn't speak a word of English the first sure. time I met him. Right. But he had been slowly learning it over the years. Then he said, "I'm working on something, and so don't tell anyone. But <laughs> there's, it's a pro. I'm working on a project that I want you for." And so I kind of figured out that that probably meant he was working on a sequel. And right. then I would say six months later. I got another Facebook message from the producer that I'd met years earlier saying it's coming. We've got a sequel and we want you to be in it. So, and, um, that's, that's how I found out when it came to recording, uh, for deadly premonition Two. I mean, obviously it was 10 years later. I know you mm-hmm. just mentioned the anecdote about a uh, video recording and how technology I, had improved any anecdotes from those session sessions, or was it pretty cut and dry? Well, the interesting thing was, of course, I had no clue what the voice sounded like anymore. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> right? So this one we recorded in L.A. Uh, I'm not sure what the circumstances were, but every, everyone was going to, going to record in L.A. So I went down to L.A. to record, and they just played me selections from Deadly Premonition 1, mm-hmm. just so I could get back in the groove the of the voice Jogging again. Memory so a bit, yeah. It was probably five, ten minutes of, of hearing it, doing a bunch of different lines and then just kind of settling back into it again. Oh, that's right. That's what I did. That's how it sounded. <laughs> right. And getting back into it again. Uh, but this was fun because now here's Swery, who is pretty fluent in English. He had a translator, but he really didn't need it. So it was a very different experience because he could tell me what he wanted instead of it going through channels most of the time. Yeah, um, I guess, uh, do you, I mean, I don't, I don't want to uh, to ask you any questions you can't answer, but do you think right. there will be a Deadly Premonition 3? <laughs> uh, that would be great. You know, I- Would I, you be up for it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> oh, <awesome. laughs> I just, I really, I not only like the character, but I really loved working with the team of people that were there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Swery's so great to work with and so inventive and, 
this time I got to hear a little bit. Again, same thing. Didn't have the whole script in front of me, but this time we were about halfway through and I just walked up to him when we were on a break and said, can you tell me what happens? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he smiled and said, let me show you some pictures. Oh, and okay. he showed me some pictures that he drew and I said, that's what happens at the end? That's awesome. Wow. That was my first question when the sequel was announced. It completely blindsided me, but I was like, I have to know if Swery's back. I have to know if if, uh, if Kramer's back because it's so... <laughs> I, oh I have God. to know. Without them, yeah. you got nothing. <laughs> well, I thought it was just ingenious the way he set up the second one. Mm. I don't know if yeah. I should talk about it, if there are spoilers. I mean, the game's been out for quite I, a while I, now. I finished it, so I'm good. Okay. So the, the most fascinating part to me, and of course the best challenge as an actor, was him going, okay, you're going to play a younger version of yourself, even younger than when you did Deadly Premonition 1. Right. And now you're also going to play an older version of yourself, yeah. plus he's sick, and you don't mm-hmm. know if he's going to die or not, mm-hmm. and we're going to record all of that. Right. I mean, that was, I think that was in the reveal trailer. I, and there were some like, um, like hints, like, you know, of him being young and old and what is this? Yeah. I mean, and we'll, I'll keep it spoiler light. Cause, um, right. j- just so if people haven't finished it, that was the first thing that jumped out to me when I played it was, you know, how are they going to do this? Like, it, is it, are yeah. you going to play as young York or old York or yeah. you got the, uh, the Godfather two of the uh, right. prequel yeah. sequel combination. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's, that's right. what I looked at it and said, wow, this is a prequel and a sequel yeah if you can pull it off brilliant and then as i started reading (laughs) reading the lines and hearing what he was saying i said oh you've tied this thing completely together this is brilliant right no i i I agree um moving on to another aspect of your career you are a uh, a theater professor you are an improv coach and improv instructor now Mm -hmm. are your students aware of your deadly premonition fame like does it ever come (laughs) up like in your classes or do you keep it like very professional I, I keep it professional, but what'll happen is a student or two will come in and go, I didn't know you were in Deadly oh. Premonition or, <laughs> right. you know, or C- oh, you're in C-Man. We just started, we were playing that. I can't believe that's you. Right. Uh, so I, I don't announce it during class, but what I, I do tell them that I, I've done a lot of voiceover work because I want them to understand that the skill set from improv is something that they can use and that I've used going forward. Mm -hmm. All the different voices and characters I've had to create and explore doing improv came in so perfectly when I was doing voiceover work. So I tell them that I do voiceover work just as an example of this is how you can apply the skill set. And then sometimes they'll say, what games are you in? The students that don't play games don't care, right? Right, 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 right. (laughs) They just say, are you on TV? <laughs> you yeah. <know>? yeah. <laughs> right. But there are at least a few students in each class that are gamers that will say, well, what games have you been in? Um, let me ask you this, because I'm so curious. I have, because I'm in the performing arts. I, you know, I, I'm friends mm-hmm. with many uh, actors or people in that field. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you teach improv, so to speak? Like what, what is a Jeff Kramer class like? Like how do you instill <laughs> those techniques into students? It's mostly skill sets that you're just practicing over and over and over again. My feeling is you can't really teach someone how to improvise. You don't really need to because everyone knows how to improvise. You improvise your day. You don't know what's going to (laughs) happen moment to moment, right? And so you're used to improvising things. Everyone's done it. You just may not have done it on stage, but every conversation you have with someone is improvised. Right. Right. And so I'm just teaching those skill sets. You're listening and reacting to what they say. And then we'll just show them tools of, well, here's how you can move your body differently to create people that sound and look and move differently from you do. 
and then you just practice. And then it's a very personal thing. Everyone develops their own style of how they improvise. And you really can't explain it. I can't explain how I do it and <laughs> nobody else can either. Yeah. It's just, it's, in, it's an internalized thing and you just figure out how you're going to do it. And what I like most about it is that there's 10 million correct ways to do it. It's kind um, of like any art form, really. You can't say, well, this is how you paint. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. You could say, here's different ways you could hold a brush. Here's how you can mix color. But unless you're doing paint by number, you really can't say this is how you paint. You have to put this color on this number, right? That's, sure, sure. And and that's not creative anyway. That's just following right. a template. So right. Let me let me ask you this. Um, so obviously, COVID nineteen has had a massive effect on performers uh, in every mm -hmm. field. Um, how how have you been? Like how how has it affected whether it's you know comedy sports or or teaching? You know I'm you know I I can assume you know there's been a lot of Zoom work, but how how have yeah. you been through this process? Well, it was really bizarre to start with because you're disembodied really, and yeah. the hardest part about any type of performing, we had to make a lot of changes to our improv show. So we we began doing Zoom shows with comedy sports, but. I would say we have two, three hundred different types of games we could play in a show. But in the virtual world, it's 20 because so many of the games just don't work. Right. So you can't really, it's hard to do a lot of physical stuff. And the, the hardest part of all is you can't make eye contact with people. And so when you're improvising with people, you, you can see in their eyes whether they're about to say something or even if they have an idea. And sure, there's that yeah. give and take which you don't have on Zoom. So there's a lot of instances where you're talking over each other, even though you can still see each other, but I can't see your eyes and you can't see my eyes to really know. Right. right. And so we had to get used to how does that timing work? Very different timing and the, also the lag. Everybody's sure. got different rates and different bandwidth. And you know, there's some people that, you know, have gigabyte speed and a professional setup. And then there are other people that are distorted and freezing every 10 seconds. So we know all about that it. Too. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. know all I'm about sure, it. I'm sure you guys have dealt with that a lot. Yeah, my yeah. camera's blurry right now. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing you have to get used to is you're going, oh man, they're frozen. There must be something wrong with them, but it's actually you that are frozen. <laughs> yeah. If everyone else on your screen is frozen, it means you're frozen and they're all screaming at you that they can't hear you or see you. Never right. feels great. No. <laughs> I've also gotten kicked out of, I've lost my connection, had it completely dropped in the middle of a show. Oh, it's, it's not In the middle of a show, all of a sudden, I'm not there anymore. So actually, that actually leads us right into the final slate of questions. Um, so number one, I want to say uh, thank you, Jeff, for being here. Uh, we're, we are in the, uh, what I call the final rapid fire segment, where we're going right. to, we're going to hit you with some off topic stuff. And I'd love to know your, uh, your responses to these. So sure. you almost took it out of my mouth here. So my first question. <laughs> for you is what's your biggest oh shoot moment on stage whether it's comedy sports or theater how did you handle it you know forgetting a line you know dropping a line getting stumped what did you do fortunately in the improv world there's no such thing as being stumped because you can say anything at any time and if you just commit at a hundred percent nobody knows anything is wrong uh, wow. okay it's like jazz it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah yeah exactly right yeah you just you just play different notes who's gonna know in the audience right they don't right. have the script they don't have mm -hmm. the music in front of them they just listen and go oh that was interesting <laughs> right um let me uh next next question uh so if you could play any role film video game stage production what would it be wow well there's there's so many great roles you know i told you i've done shakespeare yeah and you know there's there's all kinds of great roles 
that I would love to be able to play someday. And what's great about Shakespeare is, well, it's it's an unfair advantage for men over women. Sure. <laughs> because unfortunately, uh, you know, as men age, there are all these other rich roles for men and there are very few roles. Well, there's no roles really for for women as you get older, unless you're going to suddenly be playing nurses and maids and, and mothers. Right. Uh, but uh, for men, you know, as you get older, you know, there are roles that you can play that are really rewarding and demanding. And you say, you know, I don't even think I want to play. I can't play Romeo anymore, right? I'm right. much too old, but I don't want to because my life has changed and that role doesn't even interest me anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah, the character I want to play doesn't a, resonate so much. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to play a 14 or 15 or 16 year old anymore. Right, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't right. resonate with me. But yeah. there are all these other roles that do. Uh, Beppy, hit it next. Yeah. Uh, so uh, do you share Agent York's uh, love of niche and obscure film? <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> my but my uh, stepson does. So it's uh, like okay. having a junior York in the house. <laughs> it felt like a sweary thing. I just wanted to make sure. Oh, it, it was. It <laughs> yeah. was. And so some of the some of the movies I had seen and knew enough about. But yeah, when he really started getting into that, it became a joke. <laughs> Yeah. You know, for us, yeah, that's so funny. Said, oh, here we go again. You know, and so now I told you this uh, uh, off mic. I saw I saw the hat you're wearing, and so I mm -hmm. I was going to hit you with this. So um, I'm assuming you're a baseball fan. Yeah. Uh, so am I. How do you feel about the need to update or speed up the game? Like, should games go to seven innings? Should we eliminate the shift? And should baseball change? This is your time. Make your pitch or not. Oh, I've been waiting to say, I've been waiting to have this platform. I can't tell you for how long. All right. It's yours. All right. I got, I got a lot of problems with you people. Yeah. Airing of grievances. Yeah. It, I'm airing grievances right now. No, if you're going to change the rules, then you have to allow to change everything else. So here's, here's one really stupid thing that just happened recently. Mm -hmm. So uh, Madison Bumgarner pitched a no hitter in the first half of a doubleheader that went seven innings. Yep, shortened game. They're not giving him credit for a no-hitter. Because it wasn't nine. Wrong. What? <laughs> Absolutely wrong. What? Absolutely wrong. You change the rules, so yeah. a game is now officially seven innings. If you're going to say that a game is seven innings, then you change all the other rules, too. It, he threw a complete game no-hitter, right? Now, yes, it yeah. wasn't nine innings, but he couldn't go nine innings, right? right? Now, now, I was this recently? Was this like, was this th this was this in the season? last week. Yeah, wow, I'm surprised week. I didn't hear about this. And wow, I'm, come and on, yeah, man. Right. Exactly, yeah. so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, that goes in the record books. That is an official no-hitter. If you want to put an asterisk after it and say it was in a seven-inning game, then go ahead. But you can't tell him that the game only goes seven innings, but you don't get credit for you pitched an entire game. They right. told you the game could only be seven innings long. So you don't you don't get to do both is what I'm saying. <laughs> now, should they eliminate the shift so there's more offense or no? No, I you know what? I I think if they put a shift on you, then you adapt to the shift, you know? Sure. But I I mean, I've grown up a baseball fan all my life, but the one mm -hmm. thing that drives me crazy about it is where they talk about the integrity of the game, where mm -hmm. all they've done is change things <laughs> over the years, <laughs> right, right? Right, No, I mean, they lowered the mound at one point, they raised the mound, right? They moved <laughs> the fences in, they moved the fences back. They made the ball different so they could get more home runs. They mm -hmm 
turned their backs on the fact that players were using steroids because it was exciting and while it mm-hmm. brought money in. And then when it became something that got in the public's eye, they went, oh, now we're going to penalize everybody. <laughs> right. Right. And then, of course, now, the biggest yeah. thing was for however many years, the best players in the game were not allowed to play. Right, right, right. right. Willie Mays and Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson only got to play for 10 years. He missed most of the prime of his career because they wouldn't let him play. You know, I wasn't I wasn't going to turn this into a baseball conversation. I'll just ask you one more. Okay, sure. Because I could have done, I could have easily done an hour on this. Just oh, me so too. Maybe, maybe we'll have you on a sports <laughs> episode. Right. Sure. Um, so the last one, the last sports question for me is: yeah. Pete Rose has got to go in the Hall of Fame, right? Can we stop this, or what do you think? You got to give me your 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 honest answer. I I think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. I think Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. Yep. All of these guys, because again, uh, what Pete Rose did was a- after he retired. Yeah. So it has nothing to do with what he did as a player. Uh, I, and all the steroid guys should all be in the Hall of Fame. You mm-hmm. you turned a blind eye to that while they were doing it. They knew they were doing it, but it brought in fans and brought in money. So, no, right. they should all be in. All yeah. of them should be in. Especially Jose Conseco. Yeah, I don't like Pete Rose personally. <laughs> I don't like Pete Rose personally just because he punched Bud Harrelson in the face in the 1973 World Series against the Mets. But <laughs> right, forget about right. that. <laughs> I think he's a jerk, but he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, 4,000 hits. Sure. Um, Okay, so we have come to the end here. I have one last request uh, from you. Um, Now, if you would indulge me with this, this this would like, I could die happy tomorrow if you would do this. Now, Uh, if this is, you can't believe how much pressure that puts on me. Just just that setup. Just, just that, that big, setup. Big right, setup. It could go either way yeah. here. Yeah. It could go either way. <laughs> exactly. Now, exactly. if you wouldn't mind, in the voice of Francis York Morgan, could you introduce the show? Could you say something like, hey, everyone, this is Francis York Morgan, and you're listening to Goddamn GameCube. Hello, everyone. This is Francis York Morgan, and you're listening to Goddamn GameCube. But please, call me York. All my friends do. Thank you. That thank. I'm gonna clap, even though. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really. I mean, I was like, I got to the end here, and I was like, depending on how this goes, I'm gonna ask that or not. So, <laughs> well, hopefully, I didn't screw it up. So no, that was perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, that's gonna do it for um, for this interview. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Do you uh, do, do you have anything to plug or promote at this time? Uh, just if people want to see comedy sports, it's like I said, it's all over the U.S. and uh, you can go to cszworldwide.com. C is in Charlie, S is in Sam, Z is in Zebra. cszworldwide.com. And then we're in San Jose, cszsanjose.com. Cool. We'll throw those in the description as well. Great. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely.